Nicolette Laxton. I am co-founder and co-CEO of The Inky List. My name is Mark Curry. I am the other part of that co-part of The Inky List. And what we love about beauty is that it is truly in the eye of the beholder and anyone on the planet can do as little or as much as they want. And The Inky List is here to help give you better knowledge to understand what that looks like. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Well, welcome, Colette and Mark. We're so happy to have you here today on Beauty is Your Business and hear more about your story. Hi, really, really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having us, April. Of course. So you have a really interesting I guess, origin story of your brand. You started outside of the beauty business, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you, at least you, Mark, came from a classroom to having this hugely successful skincare brand. So bring us back to the beginning. Yeah, let's go way back. So yeah, we've both got very different backgrounds. My background is rooted in science and then science education as a teacher over here in London. I then transferred into commerce in general FMCG. And then latterly at Boots the Chemist, which is a retailer over here in the UK. And that is where I had a first interaction and knowledge of Colette. I then went away and did my first startup. And it wasn't until we started this current business that I got back in touch with Colette. And we began our journey on creating the Oculus. Amazing. And Colette, tell us a little bit about your journey into the skincare world. So I joined Boots and kind of worked my way right from kind of, I worked in Boots.com originally. So I was kind of looking at the commerce side of things and then moved all the way through the business until I found my passion, which was brand development and really understanding the consumer and understanding what it is that they want and being able to give them what they want from end to end. It was such an incredible passion of mine. And I started out more in the cosmetic space, actually. And I think for us, we'll get onto it, but skincare was always a bit daunting for us. It's when the big boys play and finding a consumer gap is a bit of a challenge for us but from the start kind of beauty for me as Mark said is so powerful to people so even in that FMCG world we were able to impact consumers obviously with the Inculus we feel that we're going way further. Amazing and so tell us a little bit about how the Inculus came to be how you came together and where the idea originated and then how you brought it to life. We were in a startup that was actually a multi-branded business model. So out of the belief set that the commercial reality is lots of new products and new brands die and die fairly quickly. And so our kind of business model was about making sure that we have a minimum viable product, a brand, and you test lots of different things and concepts in different ways before you get one that really works and then you go in all in on that one once you've got the demonstrable traction. And so skincare was the last category that we wanted to try. As Colette said earlier, we were frightened to death of the bloodbath of spend, the big beasts that were in there and really dominating the market. But we wanted to be really clear on what our point of difference is. And what we saw at the time was brands in here that were maybe causing a bit more confusion. We had The Ordinary that launched a couple of years earlier that was teaching the world that great ingredients didn't need to cost the earth. 
but we saw a real gap and Colette can talk to this a little bit more around how do we make things simpler and easier for consumers to really connect with skincare. So we started out with a very simple why and everything in our company from day one to today is always about being clear on your why. It's not what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. And the reason why we started the Inky List was seeing consumers on Reddit, on Facebook communities, joining together to try to get the answers. So they were asking each other, hey, this is my skin. I don't know what to do. This product's confusing me in my bathroom cabinet. Like, help me. We were reading these forums going, why is it that brands aren't doing a good enough job at helping to support people with that education and understanding? They're just bamboozling with all these claims and crazy scientific names for products. And we said, actually, if we could really simplify it and help people enter that world of skincare, making skincare effectively simple to understand and easy to use. Now, that sounds really simple, April, and you're kind of like, okay, fair enough. But actually, that has continued to this day. So knowledge is the basis of everything we do from products through to our customer service, which is called our Skinky. And actually, we're really proud that that why of really trying to make skincare simple is the reason we exist and the reason that consumers love us. That's amazing. And so Let's talk about like the nuts and bolts of actually getting the brand off the ground, the formulations, the packaging, the distribution. What was your strategy sort of as you came up with this amazing idea and saw this hole in the market? Like we said, we genuinely believe in the power of kind of lean startup and wanted to make sure that we were as tight as possible in what that go-to-market launch looked like. So we had 12 products that we saw as part of the core range, but we also wanted to make sure that the brand intoxicated some real beauty junkies as well with possibility and so we had three more trendy ingredients as well and that was kind of a a sensible starting point from a category perspective we believed in we actually delivered this from concept to stock in warehouse in 18 weeks believe it or not across those 15 products I mean, it sounds unimaginable now, given the world's current supply chain crisis, but you know, we had already got all our connections from labs and manufacturers, etc. alike. So it was really kind of leaning into that expertise and just doing product development in a bit more of a decisive and pacey way. And with that, we had to keep our customer base quite tight initially. So deliberately UK only is a tiny island that you can reach a few more people, uh, deliberately a short amount of customers and a short range so that we could test, try and learn what was going to happen. And do you know what, April's so funny. People don't believe this, but we are from retail. So we knew retail and we were starting to understand a bit more around the pure players in the digital space. But until the pandemic hit, we didn't even have our own website. So it's bonkers to even imagine that in this space and given the world of the pandemic, digital flu, and we quickly made sure that we rectified that. But it is quite interesting for us because we feel ourselves as actually quite a digitally native brand in terms of our community and the way that we speak to our customers. But actually, it was a very, very long time before we actually started the commerce side of the business. So we are the least DTC expert business you could ever get. And I think rooting ourselves in, where is that on timelines? The Inculus was launched in September 2018. And we literally had about 120,000 units across those 15 different products. And we sold out in about six or seven weeks. And so the momentum literally was sparked immediately. And 
we've been sprinting to catch up ever since. And what do you think caused that momentum? What was that spark that you obviously were testing the market in the UK and then it was a hit off the bat, which is not usually the case for a lot of brands. So was it the right place at the right time, you know, really filling a hole in the market, finding the audience? What do you think that was? We'd had four brands previously, as Mark had said. It was actually quite shocking to us from day one. We kind of knew we had something interesting here. So I think press is obviously really important, but it's hard to get press as a young brand. And the day we launched, we had 19 pieces of top tier coverage, which was pretty phenomenal. And then by the end of the day, I had a major retailer calling me saying, hey, we need this brand. Can we pay to air freight it over from your manufacturer? And it was kind of like, okay, there's something interesting here. And then within four weeks, Sephora were kind of at our door saying this is the right brand. So within six months, we'd launched into North America with Sephora, which you know we never could have expected. So it was a whirlwind from day one with Inky. We're very mindful, though, as you said, it's not usual. And actually, you know, the four brands we'd had previously were desperately trying to get POs from retailers, desperately trying to get the brand traction. So we definitely felt the difference with this one. And I think because we were so cognizant that it felt different it just made us lean in even harder and one of the values that we have as a business is start at yes and then figure it out and you know that is very much the entrepreneurial spirit that we've engendered and if we didn't do that we would not have rehit on our supply chain to service the customers we had we would not have dared to kind of said, oh, all right, then to kind of Sephora across the globe and the timings of launch that they wanted. But being very clear that we had something and we didn't, you almost don't want to wish it away or say something too loud because it might fly away. So we absolutely did everything that we can or could to kind of realize the momentum at the time and just keep it going as long as possible. Yeah, so our top tip in business is start it, yes. If the customer wants it, We'll find a way to make it happen. (laughs) I love that. And what were some of the challenges or opportunities as you expanded so quickly into the North American market and beyond that? Multiple. We were still very lean as a startup at the time. And so we very much as collecting ourselves were the lead contacts into Sephora. And although we might speak the same language, although you could argue American English is very different to English English, finding our way to navigate through the beast that is Sephora. And we hugely respect Sephora. You know, Artemis Priya and and Sam Liu and the team did a great job in incubating us and making sure that we had very clear focus and partnered with us on what we should do versus what we shouldn't do, and and albeit in a pre-pandemic world. But we didn't get everything right. And it was just a case of just placing the bets that we believed right from our experience as a time when we were a retailer, our experience when creating brands that weren't as kind of going like the clappers and just making sure it was always a balanced approach that didn't put us under too much duress. Do you know what I think the challenge then is very similar actually to the challenge that we're having right now. The pandemic ironically was a slightly simpler time because you focused wholly on digital. I think when we first launched, trying to balance 
the digital business with the must-haves from Sephora doors of, you know, field sales teams and the huge investment of being in a bricks and mortar environment. It was actually really difficult as a young brand with limited funding to make those calls. You know, where do you spend? Where do you invest? You know, we didn't know the North American market and it was working with Sephora on where do we place those bets to win? Ironically, when we hit pandemic and stores shut, it was just, you know, go, go, go and lean in even harder on digital. But I actually feel right now we're, we're kind of in the same in places we were where, you know, bricks and mortar is just fiercely back to life. And we're, again, trying to balance bricks and mortar versus digital. It's a tough time again now. And I think I say the words intoxicate by possibility. I think that's who we naturally are <laughs> as kind of people and kind of business people and finding focus was probably the hardest thing to do at various different points. But the one thing that I wish I'd get better at and not is constantly on my development plan is focus, 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 you know, because optionality is great, but execution is essential. And and that focus bit from our partner retailers, from kind of our board and trying to hold one another to account on it is constantly a, a challenge. So if our top tip number one is start at yes, top tip. Number two is definitely focus. I love that. I'm so curious to kind of go back to, you know, the brand origins and how you positioned it. Obviously, you're known for offering a great value for the products that you're delivering and the ingredients. So how do you keep costs down? What was your strategy there? Because obviously, you're offering really great ingredients and quality, but at a good value, which is challenging in a lot of cases. Yeah, it was a challenge then. It's still a challenge today and it will be a challenge tomorrow as the cost of living crisis bites and starts to bite harder. We've always had great industry depth and knowledge and that starts really with our relationships and our relationships with raw material suppliers in particular. So where we were very square and maybe different to most other indie brands or startup brands is we already had the connects in and we had a very clear idea of what ingredient grade percentage everything so we we knew what we wanted to deliver and we kind of rode roughshod over manufacturers that traditionally act as that middle point person to other brands in how they create new products so we kind of almost went right to the very start of where things are where the cost is in terms of the ingredients and made sure that we we had a model that stripped every single bit of what we say is pointless cost out and I always go back to kind of what in other categories inspires and Ikea does. As an example, you know, when they did pint glasses, they did square pint glasses to make sure they maximised the efficiency of the transport and didn't have needless gaps. It was going to that level of detail, making sure that the weight of our kind of packaging was great from an integrity perspective, but was as light as possible to cut down those costs. The hero ingredient was from the right source at the right price. The supporting ingredients was from the right source and the right price, but there is no filler, needless fill of anything else in there that doesn't really lean into the efficacy of the product in particular. The cartons were squeezed within an inch of their life of the pack. People think we're minis. We're not minis. We just don't waste plastic, glass or cardboard on any excess of it. So, you know, people are appreciative of the price, but it takes blood, sweat and tears on every aspect of the supply chain to try and get it to that price point. Yeah, and I think the only thing you haven't really lent into is Mark's superpower, I would say, is he's a fantastic innovator. And what we've never done through this process is at the cost of the consumer. So the end product has to be 
incredibly powerful it has to work it has to do the job for the consumer there's no point putting products out there that just aren't going to please them to mark's point getting them to understand when we first launched so i designed all the packaging and the brand we were shocked to see our brand on shelfies on instagram because we didn't try to make it pretty and millennial pink and you know everything that was attractive to the consumer but they actually got it and they got that they were paying for the formula they were paying for great products not necessarily paying for the you know this beautiful glass bottle so we were lucky that it resonated with the consumer but ultimately we talk about value as efficacy and price there's no point having something that's affordable if it's not great so that was the real balance for us of how do we really work hard in the supply chain to strip out as much cost as possible but not at the expense of the end use of the consumer right that makes sense it's really incredible there's not a lot like that on the market so it's awesome to see and we love how you've made these ingredients and formulas so accessible to people at various levels so it's amazing Another question that I had for you is, as the brand has grown beyond the initial offering, obviously, how do you go about formulating, coming up with ideas for new products, figuring out what to launch when? Obviously, there's an endless amount of ingredients and different types of products and formulas you could launch. So what's the thought process behind that? So step one, it's our consumers. So we have an incredible service that I mentioned called Ask Inky, which is a 24-7, 365, basically customer service support, which has got skincare experts, humans, not bots. So you can speak to us, live chat, WhatsApp, call, Zoom call. We're here to help you with your skin. And that's a completely free service because if we are here to make skincare simple to understand and easy to use, we have to offer a support system and a service to be able to do that. So we started that as a support service, but actually what we realized very, very quickly was that was our best data source because we were having conversations with consumers every single day, understanding the nuances of them and their skin, understanding their needs and learning because they're there going, hey guys, have you got azelic acid? And we're like, no, we don't. And then we're like going to the product team, right guys, there's a request for an azelic acid. So number one is really getting that data from our consumers when we're speaking to them every single day. So they really do feed a lot of the intel when Mark and the team are innovating. Yeah. And if consumer met and unmet wants and needs is there, it's also what's the market saying? What are the trends as well? I think we've got a bit more savvy and a better tech stack to kind of make sure that we can scrape the market a bit more and see if there's any trending ingredient anywhere on the planet and so that's kind of route two and the final kind of route in terms of inspiration for kind of product development differentiation is back to where our strength was to deliver great efficacious products at great prices which is raw material supplies there's always some great technology and innovation that's happening and these guys are super smart people do really great work but you know they're not consumer facing and I think some of the magic we unlock is really taking that laser focus on the consumer and our mission on making things simpler to understand and easy to use and tweaking and pivoting certain trade ingredients or trade concepts into something that really can zing for the consumer as well as be sensible from our perspective in terms of not creating product that we already do, but position it in a very different way that can really add value to the consumer's skincare or hair care. Amazing. And I'm so curious, have there been any surprise successes or failures amongst the products that you've launched so far? Because there have been quite a few. 
Yeah, we pride ourselves on innovation. I think, again, coming back to, I always say it's very difficult to escape your own biology. So whilst we say focus, 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 that's bloody difficult for us. And innovation, we still, like when we started the brand, we had kind of three out of the 15 products that were what we call trend skews, ironically, at the time. We still love to bring the latest and the greatest ingredient first and cheaper than anyone else. So, you know, that's a bit of a like product MO. But what we've learned is almost natural beauty is very dear to some consumers' hearts. But when we've had more naturally sounding products, I would say they don't really take hold and have the same momentum as something that maybe is a bit more of a clinical, more sciencey background and backed up by clinical data. That's just an observation that we've seen in our portfolio. Yeah, and I think a big learning for us is we've got two different types of consumer and we learn quite quickly about the curious, we call them, and then the confused. And I think we find that actually from a retail perspective, it's really interesting to see what works and where. So in some of the more indie retailers where you've got those real beauty junkies, they're obsessed with that real innovation. So when we launched our tranexamic acid, it went to our number one skew immediately. And that continues to be a huge skew. Whereas actually in a traditional bricks and mortar sense, actually it's the retinols, the hyaluronic acids and that kind of safer ingredient that they might know or understand or be confused about they tend to work so through our innovation we actually learn more about our consumers and you know some of them are confused and need a journey into skincare through those simpler ingredients and then some people just want that newness you know exciting innovation and something like tranexamic acid or polyglutamic acid which are our more innovative ingredients the fact that we're bringing that innovation at a price point of under 15 dollars That's the thing that really hits people home because they can try this really exciting innovation without really hurting their pockets. Right. It's so genius. It really is. That's the thing. You know, people want to, they don't want to spend a lot of money on something they're not sure about, or maybe it's new, or that's an amazing way for people to be able to kind of like test the waters and see if it works for them. So I'm also really curious about obviously the robust customer service advisor network that you have. What was the genesis of that? Obviously, you know, some brands have some sort of customer service. You might be able to email them and get an email back in like a week or two weeks or something, but yours is always on call and really more like an advisor that you would experience if you went into a retail store and you were at a beauty counter. So what was the reason for that, establishing that as the brand grew? So I think from day one, like I said, we were quite digitally native and we found really quickly that our engagement within our social channels was really high. People weren't just kind of viewing our content and converting. They were not only commenting, talking to each other, but saving down content and contacting us on DMs. So very quickly, we we felt like we had, you know, back to that Reddit community, Facebook community, we, we almost were becoming that forum for people to have a conversation, but also people were coming to us and they felt like we were an approachable brand and that they could have a conversation with us so from day one we kind of thought there's something here that was the evolution of our skincare and it started small you know to this day our asking he skincare advisors aren't kpi'd on sales they're kpi'd on helping people and i think 
the authenticity of Asking Key and the way we really built it out from our why, which is, you know, knowledge and helping people. I think that's why that kind of originally resonated. Over the two-year period that we've had Asking Key, it's been phenomenal. We've answered hundreds and thousands of people's questions. And last year, we were really excited to launch MyInKey, which is a support service that takes you beyond just that one simple question that you might have. So we were finding that a lot of people were coming back and back and back to us. And, you know, we could see the chat history and we were kind of thinking, you know, these people want more in-depth support. So we've actually launched a coaching service with our Asking Key team. So you can have your own skincare coach. So they can walk you through a six-week journey where you can speak to them daily on WhatsApp or you can Zoom on a weekly basis and they take you through your skincare journey. And that's been fascinating for us to get a more in-depth, connection with our consumers who really sometimes need a a lot of hand-holding on their skincare journey. And I think I remember when we decided to launch it because there were only about 16 people at the time and we needed four people to have a 24-7 coverage in Mm. from West Coast time in America to kind of Central European time. So I remember thinking at the time, blimey, this is kind of now going to be four out of 20 people that is squarely just answering questions without any commerciality around it. And it was pretty scary. But I think we thinking of business and thinking about the competitive landscape in any form of beauty category. I think because we are so clear on why we exist and how we operate, having to make a big decision on people and to really lean into the Asking Key franchise was an easy decision because it is literally the personification of why the brand exists. There is a human on hand to answer any skincare question. And we get questions about CeraVe, The Ordinary, you know, we genuinely answer all questions without kind of brand remorse. And I think that engenders a lot of trust from people. And they might not not even be buying us eventually, but our kind of naive belief, if you will, is in helping people and be thoughtful about supporting the category in general that that will have a benefit down the road when it comes to the success of the brand. We have a very funny story on this because, again, we've not really publicised Asking Key maybe as much as we should. You know, when people come to us, we're there. But we tested a little bit of a trial on TikTok because... We have a lot of young customers coming into the brand who really need help their first step into skincare. So we did a very small test on TikTok where we did some ads kind of saying, if you need some help with your skin, come to us. We just so happened to do that at the same time that CeraVe launched a new cleanser. So we had 3,000 questions come in immediately from young people wanting to buy the CeraVe cleanser and needing to know more information. So it's a shame we didn't get any commission on that. But um, it was great. It was great to see, you know, that there was a gap and that people are wanting to enter the skincare category, but they need a little help. Oh, for sure. I mean, obviously, I see that in my day-to-day job all the time. So it's amazing to have resources like that. It really is. And I'm also curious, as you built the business and as it's evolved and grown, has the target audience changed from sort of the beginning? As it evolved, have you seen your customers change or has it kind of remained the same since the beginning? We set out to always be accessible to everybody and that's genuine. That's not, you know, a marketing ploy. You know, the fact that our brand is monochrome, we want to make sure that we are not a pink brand that males feel like they can access. And we always say, you know, we share products. We just have our cleanser in the shower. We both use it. That was really the mentality. That accessibility piece is really key. So all skin, all ages, all genders. But what's quite interesting from a brand demographic perspective is it kind of 
depends where you are. So we built the brand at the time that Instagram was king, right? So that 25 to 34 is our core consumer. They're on Instagram and they're shopping in Sephora. So, you know, by the very nature, we've got a great demographic there. But again, as TikTok launched and, you know, we found a huge influx of young people coming through that platform. But what's super interesting, actually, and I don't think we do a good enough job on this, is naturally our male customer. So on our DTC site, up to 40% of traffic is male, which is phenomenal from a skincare brand that's not, you know, male oriented. So yeah, I would say we are for everybody, but it kind of depends who's shopping and where as to how they access us. Got it. And you would just mention where people are shopping. Obviously, that's changed a lot from before the pandemic through the pandemic to now. So what is kind of like the current state of retail and e-tail for you guys? <laughs> yeah, I mean, much like everyone, we're trying to navigate as a business, hybrid working and people wanting to strike out and go away this summer. And I think that's playing out in the consumer world as well. You know, people are being thoughtful about doing things that they haven't done for a few years, which is great. But equally, no one is going to escape the kind of economical macro environment as well. So, you know, we are very thoughtful and mindful about value and making sure we do our jobs and tell every consumer that the value proposition that we're doing, no matter what channel they're in. And I think we're finding our way, you know, but I think we were surprised at how quickly brick and mortar came back to life in every market. And it genuinely has. With the support of our retail partners, did what we thought was sensible, which was definitely invest in the digital space and make sure that we got that right. And so we were a little on the back foot in terms of what our rightful share, I would say, or physical retail space shouldn't be on the locations, etc. So we see the next couple of years as probably a correction period as we kind of get our bigger and bigger space and share and distribution in our partner retailers to tell our story even better, to be found by more people as well in the retail stores that we're at. But at the same time, I think our mission is making sure, particularly with the Ask Inky franchise being the personification of what the Inkyless brand is, making sure that we connect the journeys in as seamless as way possible and make sure that whether they're on our site, a retail partner site, or a retail partner store that very seamlessly they can connect their skin to solutions and um, products that are right for them in the first instance. And even if they don't buy, they walk away from that web page or that gondola or that kind of bay and know a little bit more about skin or hair care than they did before they walked up to it. And I think there's a lot of chatter about digital and omnichannel. We don't think we're there and we don't think many people are there yet in terms of truly answering that for the consumer because their journey is bouncing backwards and forwards between, you know, digital and bricks and mortar. So there's definitely a lot of work for us to do there to make sure that we're trying to make that journey as seamless as possible. And a good example of that is taking our Ask Inky service into Sephora Doors. So we're the first ever brand to put a QR code on our fixture where you can literally scan to live chat to our team. So we are doing our best to kind of really, you know, make that whole journey really seamless. But by no means have we got it figured out yet. Wow, that's remarkable. I have not heard of anybody doing that before. So pretty incredible. And so what are your goals for the brand for the future? Where do you see the next chapter going, new categories? What does the future hold for the Inky List? So ultimately, we believe this could be a long-standing legacy brand in every country on the planet. And 
The reason why we're called the Inky List is in the industry, Inky, I-N-C-I. It has to be on every health, well-being and beauty product. And so rationally, you could say there is a role to make every category simpler and easier to understand that an affordable price point at the end of the day. So category-wise, for sure, is a big opportunity for us in the next decade or so. And that's starting now. We've just recently launched our hair care SKUs, our scalp and hair SKUs on Sephora.com. And some of those just blew straight out right away. And so we're bringing them into stores in the autumn time. Yeah, August 19th. There you go. And I think regionally as well. We only really have focused where we've got expertise, which is fundamentally the UK and North America. But we know we've still got lots of runway in North America, lots of runway in the UK and Europe. We've only just really starting to kind of expand out with our relationships in Europe with Sephora. And that's without saying Asia, which is an unbelievable opportunity for us in the kind of near and medium term. So we are intoxicated by the possibilities that remain, not just in skincare, not just in the countries that we're currently operating, but way beyond that as well. April, don't ask Mark questions like that because you'll be there all day. (laughs) That's okay. We love to hear it. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you both so much. Really appreciate your time. So we'd love to share with our listeners how they can connect with you and the brand online or wherever you would like to be connected with. Amazing. So we sell our products through Sephora. You can go on theinkylist.com and our social handles are at theinkylist. That's I-N-K-E-Y, theinkylist on Instagram, TikTok, you name it. Find a social channel and we'll be there. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to be here today. We really appreciate it. We know how busy you are. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having us, April. Amazing. Thank you, April. So great to chat. And thank you everyone for listening. Check back soon for another great guest. I'm April Franzino and this is Beauty Is Your Business. This has been Beauty Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.